Today, this is our third series in our sermon series on the books of Samuel. And today, we're probably talking about the best-known episode in both, in both books. And that's David and Goliath. It's just the staple of Vacation Bible School. There can't be anyone who doesn't know that story. And it's a wonderful story. We have David's sort of hopeless and hapless underdog facing impossible odds and God giving him the victory. An important lesson. One especially endeared to people like me. If I had a short person's version of the Bible, I think this would be right there with Zacchaeus. Okay, it would be a special section. Sometimes a short guy wins. Okay. But there's an even deeper lesson, especially for us as we're coming into a very different stage in our life in a post-Christian world. As the world not only is less and less understanding or agreeing with us, it's becoming almost hostile in many ways. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at First of all, some details of the story. But more important, we're going to draw a lesson very important to us today. Our enemy is strong, but our weakness makes us stronger. Again, our enemy is strong, but our weakness makes us stronger. Well, let's begin by looking at some of the details of the story. First of all, Goliath was truly a giant, not just really tall, a giant. If you do the measurements, he's basically a little under 10 foot tall. That even Father Kevin would have to look up to him. Okay. So he was also more than that. Not just was he tall. He was an experienced soldier. I mean, with the armor and things, it took a lot of professional training. He was an experienced soldier. He knew his way around. And also, he was well-armored. He had the best technology of his day. He was well-armored, really prepared for the battle. Then we see David, who is tall, but he's no giant. And he's completely inexperienced in warfare. Matter of fact, we have some of the verses are missing, as long as that was today. The actual passage is even longer. And when he, when he comes to bring his lunch to his brothers, he starts commenting, why is this going on? And his brothers are basically call him an armchair warrior. Who are you? <laughs> We're in the army. We're fighting here. You're bringing us lunch. We don't really need your color commentary. Okay, so we have he's completely inexperienced in warfare. And he can't, the, a comical episode is they try to put on the armor, he can't even walk with armor. Armor is so heavy, it really takes training to actually use it. He can't even walk around in the armor. So it's certainly a mismatch. But we shouldn't overlook a fact here. He has a weapon, he's not unarmed. The weapon is a sling. You understand, we think of things like a slingshot. That's not the case. In the ancient world, slings were standard military weapons. There were divisions of slingers, like there were archers. They're very powerful weapons, but they were precision weapons. Powerful precision weapons that people used. So it's sort of like Goliath has the automatic, but we have David here has a hunting rifle. It's a very real weapon. It's not an automatic, but it's a very real weapon. Okay, and to show you how serious slings were, later in the book of Samuel, we actually talk about God exercising his power with a sling as his weapon. We're told in the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the hollow of, as a, from the hollow of a sling. Moreover, David has real experience using this. We're told as, as a shepherd and things, that was a real job. He had actually used this. Again, it's like somebody coming to military service, and they haven't been trained, but they've been grown up hunting. They know a lot about guns, but they know a lot from that experience. So we said our, our, our lesson today is our enemy is strong, but our weakness makes us stronger. Let's first of all look at the enemy's strength as we face it. You know, we look at the world and feel so overwhelmed, but it's worse. I bring you even worse news. Is that actually, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, we're told our enemies are much greater than what we see. 
You know, Paul famously says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As bad as it looks, it's worse. This is not a human combat. The heavenly forces, the evil forces in heavenly places. And actually, this explains how important it is to understand what the real fight is. A strange story to us in Mark's Gospel. A lot of people sort of wish it weren't there. Don't understand it. Let me give you a prelude to, what, to understand the story. Remember on the first day of Mark's, the first day of Jesus we have in Mark's Gospel, one of the things that happens in the evening is everybody's gathered around this house. And there's somebody who's a paraplegic, and there wasn't room to get him through, so what they had to do is they actually had to lift the, the roof, right, and let him down. Now, most of us would think if you let a paraplegic down to someone who's been healing, what would you expect? Well, Jesus surprises everybody. He says, your sins are forgiven, and moves on. I don't think that's why he was there. But in any event, I think your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees immediately say, wait a second, only God can forgive sins. They said in their hearts, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus could read their hearts. He said, I know what you're thinking. But he said, you know, what's harder, to tell this man his sins are forgiven or to tell this man, rise, take up your pallet, and walk? And he said that you can know that you will see this is real. Rise, take up your pallet, and walk. And he walked. So it was a sign of something deeper. Otherwise, how would we know that he had the power? He said, this is a, a sacrament. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. Well, the story that's troubling in Mark is there's a man possessed by demons in the land of the Gerasenes at the east and sea of Galilee, a man who lived among the tombs. And when Jesus is about to cast out the enemy, he says, what's your name? And he replies, legion, meaning thousands. Now, we might say if it just stopped at that, well, he can say whatever he wants. Maybe he's crazy, maybe he has a demon, but who knows? I mean, I could claim I'm French and I'm short, but that doesn't make me Napoleon. Okay, so basically, he could say, okay, I'm legion, but how do we know that's true? So remember what Jesus does? He sends the demons into 2,000 pigs, and they go out into the sea. So saying, this is not a figure of speech. We are talking about real forces of darkness. This is no metaphor. It's the real thing. That's why that's an important story. Lest we think this is, again, a figure of speech, a metaphor, just something. It's no. He says, this is real. Look, this is real. That's why Peter tells us uh, that be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our enemy is strong. But we said our weakness makes us stronger. Now, how, how can that be? Why is it our weakness? It's not we're made stronger despite our weakness. Our weakness actually is the tool God uses to give us his strength. Because we know God is stronger than the enemy. Don't we hear in 1 John, we're told, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But think of it this way. One of the things that's surprising, look at the thing of ancient temples, it shocked people who actually uh, uh, took the sanctuary in Jerusalem, is normally they were filled with stuff. And when they took, remember the, the sanctuary, whether it be the tent in the wilderness or the actual temple in Jerusalem, was pretty much empty. Very little was actually in it. It's pretty, pretty empty. And so we say that's a symbol because the emptiness allowed that cloud, remember, of God's glory to show us the presence of God. The emptiness allowed God to fill it with his presence. It's very forth. It's God who filled it. And our weakness and emptiness does the same thing. It's exactly when we're weak that God is able to fill us with that cloud of his glory and give us his power. That's the only way it can happen. 
we have a conversation between God and Paul that, that helps us with this in, in 2 Corinthians. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Not that my power can somehow get by you despite that fact. It's actually made perfect in weakness. And he goes on. Paul then says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, and I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Later on, Paul actually uh, joyfully proclaims in Philippians, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I want you to look carefully. I can do all things. If you can do all things, you're almighty. So we can almost talk about an almighty weakness. A weakness that allows God to step in with the one who's all-powerful. An almighty weakness. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, what's the supreme example we can see in the Bible of an almighty weakness? It's the Lord Jesus on the cross. To the world, this is the ultimate loss. The whole thing came to a bad end. Jesus was completely defeated. He died in shame. That's what it looks like, right? That's what happened. We know, now we talk, we're church of the resurrection. We celebrate the resurrection, but the victory of Christ wasn't at the resurrection, it was at the cross. Think of the resurrection as more like, remember the Eastern church, the harrowing of hell. It's more like the looting after you win the battle than it is the actual victory. The victory was on the cross. That is where sin and death, at that moment of complete weakness, absolutely naked on a cross, that Christ defeated the enemy. That was the moment of almighty weakness. That's why the Eastern Church talks about a cross as a trophy. It's not a symbol of shame. That's why we have crosses. It's not something we, we, we glory in the cross. In the Eastern Church, it's something. In the Western Church, we tend to emphasize on a crucifix Christ's suffering, which is so real, how he died for us and suffered so much. But in the Eastern Church, they want to emphasize uh, the theology. So what they do is Christ on the Eastern cross is always peaceful. He's a victor. It's always a victory pose. He's always at rest and repose because he's won the victory. That's where Christ won the victory. Not the resurrection. That's, that's the fruits of the victory. It's at the cross. That's where it all happened. Now, you know, we have the same call and the same promise. It says in Luke 9, the Lord says to us, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He didn't say a lot of people. Some people said, let anyone who would, uh, who would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And Paul tells us in Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The path is the same. Our weakness is our strength when we give it to God. That allows God to exercise his power. So, you know, think of it this way. What is our sling in the battle? It's that unimposing weapon that will take out the enemy. It's the way of the cross, the way of perfect weakness. So what does that look like? Well, we have a beautiful example at the crucifixion. I'm a very conservative guy about, about scriptures. And so I've got to tell you, we have the four Gospels. When they talk about Jesus' crucifixion, all four Gospels tell us that the two thieves, there were two thieves next to Jesus on either side, and all four Gospels tell us that. John doesn't tell us anything more. Matthew and Mark said that both of them made fun of him, mocked him, joined with the crowd. Luke tells us the story of the good thief who turns to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Now, they would say, well, there must be different stories. I don't think so. 
I don't think that's the case at all. I think they're both true. Think about something. Let's look, look back. In, in the Old Testament, in Matthew 23, Jesus, when he's talking about what had happened, how, how we've treated his prophets throughout the age, he was going to be the last in the series of, of martyrs, you know, of the just, of the righteous. He said, on you is the blood of all the righteous, from Abel, the righteous, all the way to Zechariah. And if you know the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Hebrew Bible is called the Second Chronicles. They have a different order than our Bible. So it's like saying Genesis to Revelation. Everyone who has ever died righteously, you know, he's joining that train of all those who are victims, all of those who have given witness. But let's look at those two. Abel, we're told, what about his, uh, his death? We're told, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's crying for justice. What about Zechariah, his murder, the last murder in the Old Testament? It says, and when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. In both cases, there was a call for justice. So what did, Jesus is the last in this line. What did the thief see that day? The thief who had been mocking Jesus, what did he see that day that no one had seen before? Before he said this, look in the order in Luke. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No call for justice. Father, forgive them. No one had ever seen that. Remember, we time to think, remember, Jesus on the cross, people weren't asking for forgiveness. They were saying, oh, what have we done? We're so sorry. They were still making fun of him. Remember, with the, with the, with the wine being put up in the, in the sour wine, they thought it would be funny to make him make funny faces. This is the people we're talking about. But in spite of all that, his response is, Father, forgive them. The thief saw something there. This wasn't natural. It's completely unnatural. It's supernatural. This only can come from God. And this is why he's the only one who believed what was written on the top of the cross. Look at the actual words of the thief. On the top of the cross of Jesus Nazareth, king of the Jews, to mock him. What kind of king? King of the Jews. What does he say? Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He knew. He saw and believed. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. Now, we have the same story when we have Stephen, don't we? Now, Stephen was no uh, shrinking violet. You'll recall that he wasn't very diplomatic. We have his sermon uh, when he talked to the Acts of the Apostles, and uh, yeah, it's good he's not in the diplomatic corps. And uh, Stephen, when he's being stoned, however, we're told, what are his last words? His last words, is that falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not, it's a no, it's loud voice, not mumbling under his breath, I guess I've got to forgive you. A loud voice, he called out and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's like he's saying, look, now I ask you for a favor. The last thing I'm going to, one thing I'll ask you, don't hold this against them. That was a powerful prayer because someone is at present at that execution. Saul, one we later call the Apostle Paul. And the church has always held that that prayer was answered. That is why we have the Apostle Paul. God heard that prayer. Now, we say the same thing throughout the experience of early Christians. It's amazing to read the stories, often coming from outside sources, non-Christian sources, of Christians when they died. Dying in the ancient world wasn't that special. Remember, they had coliseums and things. They, they did this for entertainment. So people dying wasn't terribly impressive. What they tested about Christians was their, the, the fact that they had forgiveness and love in the face of anger and injustice. It couldn't be explained. Forgiveness and love in the face of injustice and hate. It was unnatural. It was supernatural. People knew they had seen something. You know that feeling you get um, in Jacob. Remember in Jacob in, in the book of Genesis, after his dream with the, with the, with the, um, the, the ladder going up to heaven, 
He wakes him and he says, how awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. We know we have been with God. So that's what we have here. People would see that with the early martyrs. And they actually, we actually have, have documents of people who actually became Christian while people were being martyred, knowing they'd be martyred with them. Because they, for the one time in their life, they saw the real thing. It's like a pearl of great price. Once you see it, you want it. They wanted it. Now, the Old Testament, one of my favorite expressions from the Old Testament, it's used by Jesus, is the finger of God. Let me tell you what that is. It's beautiful. Remember the story with Moses in, in, in Egypt, with Moses and Pharaoh. When he first is sent to Pharaoh and he has to, how to show me something, God gives him a special gift. He can throw down his, his, his staff and it turns into a serpent. But guess what happens with all the magicians around Pharaoh? Well, they could do the same thing. Been there, done that. They weren't impressed. Mind you, his staff ate theirs, but they weren't, you know, they, they weren't very impressed. Okay. In the first plague, we have with the blood, remember the water being turned into blood, it tells us the magicians could do the same things by their magic arts. Pharaoh wasn't impressed. The, sex, the, the second plague, we had the frogs, and it says the same thing. They could do all the same things. Pharaoh wasn't impressed. But the, the third plague, something happens. The plague of the gnats. And they can't do it. And they come to Pharaoh and said, this is the real thing. This is God. This is the finger of God. It cannot be faked. It's unmistakable. We're telling you, we're experts in this. This is God. This is the real thing, the finger of God. Now, the way of the cross is the true finger of God. It's power, God's power made manifest in weakness. It's forgiveness and love in the face of anger and hate. It's unique to the Christian faith. No other faith has this. The idea, remember, Jesus is forgiving when people aren't asking for forgiveness. It's not conditional. It's not people making good. It's an absolute unilateral thing. Again, our response, how awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. It's the power that conquers the world. It did then and it will again. Now, we might say, well, gee, that's something for another age. That was nice, those old times. Actually, it's happened throughout the history of the church, but we don't have to go back very far. It's all around us when we look. In October of 2006, a crazy man entered into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and slaughtered 10 little girls, shot them dead. It was horrible. You can imagine how those families felt. But you know, those families, they were Christians. They saw with God's eyes. Their first thought was, think of his family. Because they would have sympathy. Who's thinking of them? They're all alone. They didn't do this. So they went and comforted his family, the killer's family. They paid for the killer's funeral and attended when no one else would. This is the finger of God. People see this and they know there is something different, something that can't be faked. It's the real thing. We don't even have to go that far. What happened last week in Charleston? A horrible massacre. And what is the reaction of Christians? Forgiveness. The press didn't know what to do with it. Forgiveness. But we don't even have to look that far. It's all around us if we look. I'll tell you, I was once in a job where one of the supervisors was really a pretty nasty person. I mean, he could really be deliberately cruel. It's sad, but this happened. There are people like this. And there was a secretary who would take the brunt of this. And I remember that after one of his particularly cruel episodes, um, one of my colleagues came and said, you know, uh, you should see what he did. It was awful. And I came up and I told her once he left of how awful this was, that she needed to know that. And I just asked, I wasn't thinking about it, I said, well, what did she say? And suddenly my friend, by the way, who is not a believer, 
something that bowled me over. She stopped with awe and she said, well, actually, she said, she just lifted up her hand and she said, well, why do you put up with this? She said, what do you do? Well, I pray for him. I pray for him. I pray for him. This, this is a witness. I felt the witness just hearing the story. Think, wow, this is the finger of God. This is what you know, Luke tells us, what Jesus tells in Luke's gospel. Love your enemies, do good, land, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So as Christians, we're facing growing opposition, and we might really get tempted to circle the wagons. More than that, we might feel really bitter and angry, feeling that the things said about us are just not true, that all this is false witness. It's very easy to come, turn inward, to be bitter, to be angry. But it's precisely at this time that we have to remember the, letter, the lesson of David and Goliath. It, when the enemy is strong, our weakness makes us stronger. And so the power of the cross is it's what won, it was won the victory in the past and what will win the victory again is the power of the cross. Complete self-giving love, love that cries for forgiveness in the face of injustice. The unmistakable finger of God. Amen.